Welcome to Punk Frockers, a community sewing podcast brought to you by Jenny Hassler and Beverly Baptiste. Hi, Jenny. How you doing? You know, I'm doing okay. It's been a long couple of weeks. My um, my job gets really hairy at the end of the month, and we're recording this just past the end of the month. Um, but we got through it really successfully, which was wonderful but exhausting. How yeah. about you? Well, I'm just getting off of a vacation, so <sighs> I've kind of had the opposite situation where I'm feeling pretty good. Went out to <laughs> California with Jim. Um, the reason that took us out there was was kind of sad. It was my, my grandma's memorial service because she was 99 and she passed away a couple months ago. We had a wonderful time at the service. The people in the community that she lives in all love her. And, um, it was a wonderful service. I had a great time visiting with my cousin and my aunt and uncle that I don't get to see very often. And after that, we went to the Redwood forest and we went to we went to Fort Bragg. It's the beach. There's this, there's a, a old beach. They used to dump their trash in the ocean. And so there was something called glass beach there where there was all kinds of sea glass that had washed up because, you know, uh, that's what happens when you put things all out in the ocean. It's um, a very cliffy beach, not a sandy beach. And so I found some old sea glass, which you're not allowed to take from there, but clearly people have because there's hardly any left. And then we went to San Francisco for a few days. So that was just really wonderful. That sounds very relaxing and like a really nice trip. I'm so glad you got to do that. So what have you been sewing? I have been breaking rules all over the place because that's our theme this month for PF Anarchy. And one of my cardinal rules is I'm not going to sew it if it wasn't designed for me. But I've been sewing it even though it's not designed for me. So as I've been sorting through my stash and getting rid of patterns that aren't made body size, I found a few that I really liked and just wanted to see what would happen. Um, in these cases, they're all vote patterns by designers that are known for um, patterns with a lot of excess ease, basically. And while the patterns are designed for a 50-inch hip, which is 12 inches smaller than mine, I have been sewing them with no adjustments to the basic width of the dress. So the size it is, is the size that the largest size, the measurement of the dress is the measurement that the largest size dress is supposed to be. Now, if you think about most patterns, especially big four, um, they, they often don't give you those finished measurements that you need, particularly the big four. So for example, on um, one that I'm sewing on right now, the finished garment measurement they have chosen to give you is the length from the back base of your neck to the hem, oh, so which is probably the least important measurement as you are purchasing the pattern at the store. No matter what your height is, that measurement is probably not defining very much about the dress for you in terms of purchase. And so that's how most of these have been. And I'm finding so far that they all fit, that I fit within the ease. It is not necessarily the ease intended by the designer based on the photo on the front of the envelope. But for several of them, I think it looks better on me than it does in this extreme oversize 
on a very much slimmer model on the front of the envelope. So I've been satisfied with my results. I'm a little torn about continuing to make patterns that weren't designed for me. Um, but in the spirit of anarchy, I'm, I'm giving it a go. And these are patterns that I have purchased in the long distant past. None of this is stuff I purchased for this challenge specifically. Instead, it's stuff where as I sort through and decide whether to get rid of things, I'm, I'm giving them a final go. So I've, I've been enjoying that. It's been interesting. So I imagine you are keeping one rule though associated with this is that you are not advertising for them with the pattern number. So others will buy it. I am in fact advertising with the pattern number. Oh, you are on my Instagram. I'm linking it. And I am doing that because while I, I agree, I am opposed to the idea of people going out and purchasing patterns that aren't intended to fit their body. As I say, I think they look good on me okay. in the su- without adjustment. This is different than the one I made over the summer where it was a sundress and I adjusted it to fit my body because it was not drafted for me and as presented would not have fit me correctly. And so I had to draft it up myself. In this case, I am sewing them to the letter how they are on the pattern. I used interfacing. Oh my I goodness. Am- I am sewing them to the letter. And so giving the pattern number allows someone with my body measurement to decide if that pattern with no alterations seems like it would be a reasonable selection for them. It it would not require drafting up at least through my size. Um, I am torn about that as well. Because um, as you know, I've, I've successfully reached out and communicated with folks at um, now IG Design Group, the owners of the big four pattern companies. And they responded to me and, and said they knew that they needed to increase their sizing. Um, but I've, I've written the person that they put me in touch with three other times and I've had zero, not even a thanks for writing. I haven't had any response at all. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't really feel very much like, like there's movement that's happening there or that they're terribly terribly concerned about trying to increase that sizing. So I, I'm definitely torn yeah. on, on advertising that, but, um, but these are cute dresses. So also I, I was kind of wondering, normally you use a smaller size for your best. Nope. I'm just sewing straight down the biggest size I'm making. Okay, biggest I'm, size. I'm, yeah. Literally, it's just like this one, for example, the one I'm looking at right now is a Vogue 1780. It's a uh, dress that's made out of a really drapey fabric. It's got a weird ass collar thing going on. It's going to be cut to my navel. It's just bizarre. Um, but it comes from extra small, which they call a four, six through an extra, extra large, which is 24, 26, ending at a max 50 inch hip, 41 inch waist and 48 inch bust. And none of those would fit my measurements, not any one of them, but I would normally start a little bigger than the bust, a lot bigger than the waist and very bigger than the hip on this garment. Right. Um, and I'm not, I'm just making a straight XXL because part of my purpose is what does, what does this look like directly out of the envelope, given that nothing about it should fit me. Right. And so it's, it's been an intriguing, an intriguing experience. I won't continue to buy the patterns. That's, that's not going to change. And honestly, after this month, I probably won't continue to make them and advertise them. But this month, 
in the name of anarchy, <laughs> I am indeed doing that. Right. I have mostly just done that. I have, I believe, made another chalk and notch fair address, and I've I've definitely made a couple of uh, Rosalie's by Fiber Mood. I've got a really cute one that reminds me of Lilo from Lilo and Stitch. Mm. I'm going to borrow my daughter's Stitch doll to take the mm. picture, and because it's super cute. And um, my my tutu is from Hawaii, and it it just reminds me of all of that. So that'll be awfully fun. Um, but yeah, that's what I've done. Now, I know you, I assume, flew to California and there's been that really popular meme of someone with their sewing machine on the plane. So I just assume you have a lot of sewing to tell us about. That's funny. So I did not bring my sewing machine on the plane. <laughs> I just remembered, though, that I did do something for PF Anarchy before I left. Did you? Mm -hmm. It's kind of minor what I did for this, but, um, so I did, um, I made a seamwork Marlowe top and it's a button up top. I've made a couple of them before. Uh, it's a little bit low cut on me, but part of that I figured was that, that shoulder adjustment. I just, I, I learned that I need to do. Yeah. So, um, so I did still raise it an inch and I did that shoulder adjustment and I also made a smaller size and this seems to fit much better. However, it's a button up shirt, but I just sewed it together and sewed some buttons on top and did not make buttonholes. So that was very, uh, breaking the rules. And then um, the other thing I did with it is that I don't have any um, interfacing because it's all packed up. And so I was going to use the same fabric for it, but it was so shifty that I just didn't use interfacing at all. I just, I, yeah, I didn't. It's true. That's um, shocking. I know. But <laughs> since I, um, I, I didn't really need to because I didn't make the buttonholes. Right. So since it, you know, it, it, it seems to be okay. It does, however, um, need to be ironed every time it's washed. Um, the rayon kind of crinkles up and just doesn't, it, it doesn't look good without being ironed. So that's yeah, true. that would be a reason to get rid of something for me. So, <laughs> but what I did do was, um, I, brought a lot of my me made stuff with me. And I wanted to talk about a few of the things that were really good for travel that, uh, awesome. The, yeah. The first one kind of surprised me because, so we went to my grandma's memorial. It wasn't, we weren't to wear black clothing. It was a happy memory of her life. And I wore a by hand London dress that I had worn to a wedding. It's uh, royal blue with white flowers on it. Mm -hmm. it's a beautiful dress. And it's made in a linen and rayon blend. And I was so surprised that when I took it out, it wasn't wrinkly. And what I did was I hung it up the night before in the hotel room and it kind of, you know, loosened whatever little wrinkles there were. I was just surprised for a linen dress that I got wow. away with it. And, um, so that one I recommend, but I think that had to do a lot with the fabric um, more than the the dress. Although I will say um, it's a very not finicky dress, like it's very not fussy, you know, really easy to wear. So I think that was great for, for traveling. Um, but my two favorite outfits that I wore as far as comfort and ease um, 
was on the way out there on the plane ride, I wore my Elizabeth Suzanne Clyde work pants, which are just so cozy that I had made in a black medium weight linen with a linen Ashton tank. And then I have a little uh, cardigan that I bring with me, especially when I'm on the plane because it's warm. But those two things were so comfortable. And then on the um, while I was in San Francisco, I wore um, my Soho 7 free range slacks that I made <laughs> in um, like a gray linen. And I wore that with the parasol top that I made in that silky noil. Yeah. It was so comfortable. And every time I passed a mirror, I thought, well, this looks really cool. The butt got a little baggy, but I don't really care. Um, mostly we we're walking around in San Francisco, so it didn't get get too wrinkled up. But those outfits were really good. And I guess um, also on the way home, I wore a parasol dress. And that is a great plain dress. Uh, mm-hmm. Great dress for the plane. So I had uh, success with those items, and I hope maybe that'll be useful to somebody else who's going to be traveling. Those are great things to pack up. Well, that's amazing. So tell us about all the fabric you bought in San Francisco. (laughs) So I went to two fabric stores in San Francisco, and I was so excited because there's one, I think it's called Britex Fabric. B-R-I-T-E-X. I don't know if that's how you say it or if you say it Britex. I don't know. But it's it's an old fabric store there and it's beautiful. I went inside. It was absolutely gorgeous. And um, they have, I mean, just tons of fabric. And so the first thing I did is I went over and I looked at something and it looked it looked like a simple striped linen, you know? So I thought, okay, yeah. maybe I'll get some of this and that'll be my San Francisco purchase. It was $110 a yard. How much did you get for me? <laughs> wow. I, did, I can't afford a swatch of that stuff. So I was like, okay, so let me look around. So I look all around the store and most of the things were above $30 a yard. And wow. had I had a pattern in mind that I really wanted to make something for a special occasion or something, mm-hmm. if I had that in mind ahead of time, I would have sprung for some very special fabric for it, but I could not, I couldn't, I couldn't get excited enough about this $50 a yard fabric that I didn't have a specific right. was calling to me in that way. And I don't know that I just, it's a beautiful store. And I think there were people in there who were buying it and they, but these people, all these houses are a million dollars each. So the, their money, they're probably, they have a different idea about money than I do. So I didn't buy anything there. But I, I mean, I think that seems fair. Um. Yeah. <laughs> and then the second place that I went, there's a place on Haight Street called... Mendel, but it's also an art store and it has all kinds of arts in it. And then you go up and they have a fabric section and the fabric section is mostly um, like faux fur and then there's quilting cottons and stuff. And, but a lot of the quilting cottons, you know, I've seen before. So they're just, they're brands that I know there was like um, the Alexander Henry stuff. And so I was kind of like, well, none of this is really special enough to, to bring. Right. So wah, wah, didn't find anything, but that's okay. 
I mean, I was thinking Ashton Tank, Funfur. Oh, mm, that no, that's an idea. It's it's more likely <laughs> something that you would wear than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry you weren't successful in finding things to buy. It sounds like you left empty-handed. I did not. <laughs> Jenny knows I went to, <laughs> I actually went to two John Fluvog stores in San Francisco. I know that's disgusting, but yeah, that's possible. So yeah. yeah. And the one I, I, I spent a long time at this one place and I did get some, some Fluvog shoes. So I'm going to be just as fancy as, uh, as Jenny in my Fluvog. And actually, so what I thought of, so they're, um, a color combination of a tealy blue with orange. Yeah. Um, which is, it's so beautiful. I, I, I'm so impressed with them. When I saw them at first, I thought this is weird. And I put them on and I'm like, Oh my God, they're gorgeous. <laughs> but I bought two different c- colors of linen when I was in New York that I think will match that perfectly. Like a tealy blue with that orange. Yeah. Um, and I think what I might do is make the By Hand London Hannah wrap dress. Yeah. And make one of the panels orange and the rest wow. of the rest blue. I like it. So that's, that will be, that'll be a, as something for me to try. I'm, I'm excited about it. And I think, I think that feels a little bit rule breaky. The color blocking, especially, is that's awesome. I look forward yeah. to seeing it. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I wanted to ask you, so you, um, you've made a few of the Pharaohs, which is Mm -hmm. another, uh, which is a pattern we, that we have in common for liking. And, um, I wanted to know, would you, if you had, um, fabric that had an obvious wrong side, would you double it up in those, um, ruffles that go over? So, they do give instructions for lining the ruffles. Okay. Um, I do not. Everyone that I've made so far has an obvious wrong side. And on the first one, I thought it was risky when I made the decision not to line it. But as I wear it throughout the day, it's not, it's not super visible. It's like any flouncy sleeve where sometimes you may see the wrong side. But for the most part, you don't. And when you do, you think, that's a flounce. <laughs> you don't think, what did they do wrong? Um, okay. And so I, I did not feel it was worth it. In addition, I think with the fabrics I've chosen, I've used what I would consider to be lightweight fabrics, um, not very lightweight, but in the lightweight category. And if I doubled them up, I think they'd be heavier than I want them to be for the flounce. Okay. So I like the way the flounce looks singled and I I do a fully encased hem on it, right? I, I roll it all the way under and you could do an actual rolled hem, but I, I folded a quarter inch and another quarter inch, you know, so that there's no raw edge showing, no finished edge showing. It's, it's just there. And I've, I've been quite satisfied with it and that's how I intend to keep making it. So do you think it should be made in a lightweight fabric then? I've made it in both light and medium light. So something, so it's things between say four ounces and seven ounces. Okay. Is kind of where I've stuck. Um, and and like, I think it's been great in all of them. So in drapey fabric, or do you also use like quilting cotton style or? Let's see. 
I've used a quilting cotton. It was not my favorite for this one. I thought it was a little too stiff. I like the drapier better. Okay. okay. And so my preference has been drapier. I've used a crepe and I've used rayons um, and I've used a um, like a, a lawn. So, oh, a lawn. Yeah. So and I'm going to drapey, but still. But it, but it was drapier than quilting cotton. Right. Of course. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to do, uh, I've got, I've got fabric here. That's a crinkle rayon. One of those crinkly rayons. It's not a double gauze or anything Mm -hmm. or gauze, even just a crinkled rayon. And I'm going to make it out of that. And then I, I bought, um, some of Joanne's, they just call them their silky fabrics. So it's the the woven version of their silky fabric instead of the knit version of their silky fabric. <laughs> and, and I'm going to make it out of that. I think it'll be um, really cute. I like that dress a lot. It's quick and easy to make now that I don't do the gusset wrong every time it's even faster. So I bet you that would look really good in that fabric that you and Terrence Williams have that rainbow fabric from, from oh. I am a hundred percent sure. I'm looking forward to finding that one again on the clearance. What are we here today to do? So we're here to introduce our conversation with Kelly Hogaboom. Kelly Hogaboom is a non-binary entrepreneur, entrepreneur with a business called Bespoke Hogaboom. This is uh, something that they wanted to come on and chat with us about some of the challenges with moving from uh, amateur sewing to professional sewing and things like that. It was a really neat conversation, so much so that I actually booked time to speak with Kelly separately about those very topics, what it looks like if you're suddenly imagining yourself retired on the beach in, let's say, Mexico and uh, running a uh, couture or other dress business from the beach with your pina coladas and your (laughs) whatever, um, what it would take to get there. Because I am 20 years away from retirement if I don't have a secondary revenue stream planned or 10 or 15 years away from retirement if I do. And so that's of interest to me. And it was a a really neat conversation. I, I think that the interview that we had with them will be enlightening as well. Um, and I'd encourage folks to follow Kelly both on their private, their individual account and on their business account um, in order to learn more. Uh, opportunities open up, open up for classes that Kelly teaches as well on being an entrepreneur. And so that's that's something folks might be interested in. Yeah, I love talking to Kelly because they break the rules on all sorts of things from how they raise their kids, how they eat, <laughs> how they live their lives. Uh, it's a really interesting conversation. And I think our, our listeners are going to love it. I, I agree. I, I could listen to Kelly um, all day long. And the other thing that I think is really exciting is on the, the Instagram channels that uh, Kelly curates. Frequently, you'll find Kelly live in the evening with a guest chatting. And I don't do a lot of listening to reels or live things on Instagram. I have hearing problems and a lot of those aren't subtitled. And I'm often not in a space where I can hear well through my phone for those. So I don't, I don't watch a lot of those, but I, I do try and tune in when I, when I catch Kelly live because it's always a good time. Yeah. 
Okay, everyone, enjoy Kelly. Hello, everybody. We are here today with Kelly. And uh, Kelly, how about if you start off by introducing yourself to our listeners? Yeah. So my name is Kelly Hogaboom. My brand is Bespoke Hogaboom, and I'm a non-binary vegan designer living and working here in Aberdeen, Washington. And where is Aberdeen near? It's like right on the coast, like in the middle of the state, like we're right up against the water. Yeah. Well. Well, that sounds nice. I told my husband we were having you on. He knows nothing about sewing, so it was mostly meaningless. But as soon as I mentioned your last name, he was like, oh, my God, that's the best last name. <laughs> I, I agree. I actually love my last name, and it's a, it's a bit rare, so people tend to remember it, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's really good. When did you learn how to sew, Kelly? I, so I was thinking about this and my first sewing memory is about age eight with my mother. And then we would sew off and on through middle school and high school. And we would usually sew and fight. Um, and I'm sure that others listening know that. Um, and I was, I always had no faith in my mother's abilities, but then by the time the project was done, it always looked really great. So then I would, I don't think I actually ever apologized, but I would kind of go, Oh, okay. She knows what she's talking about. So I got to start pretty early in life. Yeah. So did you, so a sizable portion of your wardrobe or just the occasional project? Occasional project. And um, I was really kind of ushered into STEM. I was encouraged to be STEMI and I got an engineering degree and went into chemical engineering. And um, I didn't get back into touch with the arts and with sewing until my first child was born, which would have been about 20 years ago. So. Okay. So then when your first child was born, will you start making things for the kid or will you? Yeah. Yeah. So as we um, do, <laughs> yes, we do. And um, I, I just, we also chose to unschool our kids. And I just say that like, that's one of the biggest influences in my life because it catapulted me into just total like creative anarchy at all times. And I just started sewing and sewing and sewing. And a few years ago, I remember I was driving down the highway with the kids um, and they said, mom, uh, we have enough clothes. Maybe you should sew for other people. <laughs> that was the, that's the genesis of me becoming a professional right there. Oh, wow. So why don't you tell us a little bit about this unschooling? I think Jenny has some experience with it. I have actually a uh, limited experience, but uh, let's hear from you about your experience with it. Yeah. So unschooling means a lot of different things to different people. But when I say it, I mean, we raised our kids without putting them in the institution of school and we didn't even give them worksheets or curriculum. So Mm -hmm. it was like free range, you know, entirely. Uh, Some people call it whole life unschooling, radical unschooling, life learning. Um, There's even some better terms that I've seen recently. I used to write about this a lot. I've been published on this topic. So um, yeah, my kids uh, and I just spent like all of our time together until they became teenagers. And now they don't need to hang out with me at all. So I miss them. <laughs> <laughs> we did the same thing with ours, but they went into school first when we found our local schools weren't serving our children well. And our efforts to be involved and try and improve that were essentially met with statements that we should move into a better mm. district or or do other things that aren't really practical when you're um, really, really poor, which we were. And uh, we, we fell into it. We couldn't afford curriculum. So the curriculum wasn't an option. Um, And with my older daughter, 
we, I, I came up with worksheets at first, but I learned really quickly that the school process had taught her to, to dread the, the grading process. And she wasn't satisfied because I didn't grade anything. I just used them as a way of saying, hey, have you learned this concept? And if you haven't, we're going to just keep working on it. So it doesn't matter what your grade is. Um, but once we fell away from those, it just became child-led. And we didn't do learning really as a formal activity, except when one of the kids would would like request it. They'd move into a space where what they wanted to do was learn fractions. And it's like, okay, well, we can do that. But the rest of it was really just um, random experiences throughout the the day, the week, the month, the year with with things that were happening in our lives anyway, or any of the you know thousands of books that went through our house that they were interested in. Yeah, when my kids were little, people told me I was crazy, and that's a quote. Um, and then you know, my oldest got into college at age thirteen, and then all of a sudden, everyone was it literally uh, in my DMs. How did you manage this? And um, you know, it's really hard to explain unschooling to to most people because school is such a, we, I went to school. Um, most people mm-hmm. did. I think something like 98% of American children are enrolled in school of some sort. So uh, yeah, it's a huge topic. Um, but it, you know, if any of your listeners out there are burgeoning unschoolers or curious, I'm always available for those conversations, um, not for arguments, but definitely for conversations. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, so Tell us a bit about your brand, your, your clothing. Like, do you, I actually, I'm not, I know that you make uh, one of a kind stuff, but I don't know that much about your, your clothing. Uh, I don't either. I'm like, (laughs) I, I do almost everything. So I'm also, you know, I lead people, I lead creative artpreneurs into um, building their entrepreneurship. Like I'm teaching a course right now. And I always tell them, I say, like, if you have the discipline to niche, you're going to make money quicker, um, really quickly. But I don't have the discipline to niche. If you look at my two Instagram accounts, you know, today I'm making lingerie. Tomorrow I'm making heavy duty jeans. The next day I'm making a monster costume for a baby. Um, So it's hard to explain my work except to say, yes, I'd never make the same thing, you know, again. And uh, I do work I so for everyone, everybody from the tiniest preemie baby up to the largest adult you'll ever meet. And um, my stuff lasts forever and people love it. It's their favorite thing in their closet. So, uh, but I didn't really start it to, I didn't start my brand to make money. I started my brand because I had, um, I was creating so much. I couldn't stop and I still can't stop. And I, I don't try to stop anymore. I just turned it into a business. So um, I suspect a lot of sewists end up where they just have like closets bursting with things and they're like, what do I do with it? They might try to sell it. That doesn't always, that doesn't always gain as much as the effort. Uh, it actually is a problem, I think, for a lot of sewists. So one way you can get out of that problem is to think about professionalizing, right? So so, how so did you, uh, develop, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jenny. No, no, it's okay. I have questions because, as um, as you may know, Kelly, but Beverly definitely knows. Um, I spent this last weekend destashing sixty dresses from my closet, oh. which is still completely stuffed full of clothing. And over the last year, I've given away over two hundred, probably close to three hundred dresses, because I. I mean, what am I going to do with 600 dresses, basically? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so I've had to do that. 
And one of the things that occurred to me this weekend as I did the de-stash is the way I did it, I just $20 flat, take a dress, please get it out of my closet. They're, you know, they're made to my standard, which is better done than perfect. And, you know, just don't complain when you get it. That's all I'm asking. And as I started to do that, I thought, I wonder if there's a market for the few that I've designed myself, if there's a way to create a way to, to sell those as a not necessarily an exit point to my current career, but as I, I look at retirement in 10 years, mm-hmm. is this a thing that, because I'm going to keep sewing, that could fill those hours and be satisfying. But when I think about it, I think about what I earn and what I would want to earn, and it feels insurmountable. Like that there's not a way to go to what I would consider to be a a full-time professional living. And I'm not asking you for details on your personal stuff. It's just, I think that's the barrier, one of the barriers, oh, one yeah. of the thousands of barriers for me. <laughs> So there are two myths that people will tell you if you're a hobbyist sewist. They will t- the two biggest ones are that you'll end up hating your craft, which is not true. Um, or it can be true if you want it to be true, but it's not been true for me. And the second one is that no one will pay you what you're worth, air dick quotes. So I sell, you know, I make uh, custom jeans for $450 a piece. And here in Aberdeen, Washington, the only place you can get jeans is Walmart. So, and half of my clients are locals and these are working class people who save up their money make a payment plan and buy jeans for me. So it's not true that you can't sell your homemade or couture or workwear. Uh, but the barrier that you mentioned, it, it isn't simple. Um, even if I wanted to, and I, and by the way, I'm an open book and I freely share this. I don't really have a trade secret concept. <laughs> so you can get to that place and it's, it's, but it does involve business building. And so there's a lot of hobbyists out there, you know, you see those memes, like you don't have to professionalize your craft. And I agree, you don't like never feel like you should, but there are a lot of people who starts to occur to them that they either want to, or if you're like me, where is all this stuff going to go that I'm making? <laughs> like, like I'm not the only person that ended up with that problem. So if you start to want to professionalize, it's not very helpful to hear people say, well, it can't be done. No one will pay you. Like you're somehow a sellout if you try. So that's one of the reasons I started coaching is I wanted to help those who were interested and whether that's a little side hustle or whether they want to quit their nine to five job. You know, one of my success stories is a client a few months ago, he was working three jobs and he quit all three and he's supporting himself um, with his craft. And those stories make me very, very happy. So it can be done. That is a, just like a radical, I mean, it seems like you have, you're kind of a in a perfect position to do this because you're a person that just doesn't accept the status quo as the way life has to be like, you know? Um, so I was raised, my dad was in the military and like, and I have I actually have a federal job. Now that I think about that, it's kind of interesting, but, um, <laughs> you know, it was important to me that I have a job that has health insurance that has this mm-hmm. because, in the United States here, we don't get health insurance unless we have a job or we have to pay for it on our own. And, um, but it sounds like you were like, okay, so these are barriers. How do I get past them? And have you always been like that? I mean, yes. Uh, my husband and I were on a walk the other day and he said, where did you get your ambition? And I almost was like, I was like more than my sexuality, more than my gender, more than my art. I remember my ambition from a young age and my mother was a federal worker. My mother has said to me, 
why do you have to be so different? Like those literal words. Mm-hmm. And, and she wasn't necessarily criticizing. And when I look at my life and some of the ways that I am and the things I do, I have to admit, I am very fringe. Um, just statistically, there are identities and behaviors. And you're right. When I see a barrier, I tend to think it is surmountable. Now, is it worth the cost, right? Because like Jenny, if you wanted to pivot and start this little business, I think it, that's why I wanted to coach is I didn't want people to go through the agonies of swimming upstream or the agonies of, of um, you know, I get DMs every day of people, will you make this for me? Will you make this for me? And I want to help you not get swamped with like tire kickers or people who aren't serious or all those things. So it is, all of these um, are, it, are surmountable. It's just um, like, I like to help people find a way that works for them and not for them to try to build a business for somebody else. You have to build a business for yourself. It has to be balls deep, like what you want to do. So in this case, do you have to have like all your own patterns for this? That's an awesome question. So that, no, you don't. Um, These days, there are so many pattern makers who embrace and love cottage makers. And I encourage you to just work with those patterns. Mm -hmm. Uh, You legally, you can sew from anything and sell it, but uh, that the reputation you will get from that might not be worth it. You, You know what I mean? Like I don't get into that fight at all. So I, I have some patterns that I use from indie designers that are, you know, that I uh, acknowledge and love uh, cottage makers. I also draft a lot of my own. And I long ago, in fact, I was thinking I have a Dolman shirt that I've made for every size ever. And I can't even remember where I first started drafting it. I've had it for so long. So I have like a million of those hanging in my little closet. So um, for any maker out there who's thinking about this, I just encourage you to work with pattern. If you, if you're not up to drafting or you don't want to, because some people love to draft, some people hate it. I feel like when I've listened to this podcast, you, you two aren't like super into it, right? (laughs) I hate it. Yeah. I'm not a big fan. um, Yeah. The, um, the, the linen company that I buy my linen from most often the fabric store, they, um, all of their patterns, their free patterns, they say, go ahead. You can use it for, for, you know, for whatever your business, you can sell things from it or whatever. I wondered if, you know, when I go and buy a pattern for myself, right, I can make something for myself. I wondered if, and if, if people who are in your position, would they be allowed to buy a pattern for that one person and make that, that for that one person and then like give them the pattern basically. And, yeah. and so, it, so that it, it's sort of like, as if that person made it themselves, the, the, the person who was selling the pattern would still get that money that they would normally get if that, I don't know, is that a, yeah, legally, they absolutely can do that. Okay. Um, like, like I say, I just like to work with people who like to work with me. So I wouldn't do that from a pattern company that I got the impression that they wouldn't like that. But I just I have see. to laugh because I'll see these pattern companies like you can't use this for commercial. And I'm like, well, you didn't really invent a wrap dress. Those have been around a hot minute. So, you know, I, I kind of stay out of this conversation, but I will say, I think it's better to err on the side of, you know, generosity and respecting people's wishes. And so mm-hmm. if a pattern company really says, don't do this, I'm not going to do it. I don't need to though. Um, and I will say that I, I have a lot of clients, so is clients who they can't quite draft 
right? So they are kind of in this bad spot. Like, do I invest in education on drafting? Do I invest in expensive software? And I, I usually encourage them to find, there's a lot, there's a list of, um, was it 2018? Someone put a list of independent pattern designers that are happy to have you work with their stuff. And it was a huge list. I was actually quite surprised. Really? Yeah, it's it's floating around out there. I apologize. We'll have I don't to have look for it and see if we can put it in the show notes for people. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, because it's it's an interesting thing. So for myself, my husband and I were self-employed for many years, not in a creative field, but um, uh, buying and selling. So purchasing things, fixing them up, selling them for more money. It was it was what we did for a lot of years in part so that we could both be home with our children all day, every day, as we unschooled and built the family life we wanted. Prior to that, when I had been a, a stay-at-home mom while my husband worked a traditional job, I had done my best to try and build what would now be called side hustles, but a gazillion years ago, that wasn't terminology, um, in order to, to bring in more cash for the household. And I, I found one of the things I learned at that point was that if you undersell yourself, if you price yourself too low, not only do you not make enough overall, but people are actually less interested <laughs> in what you're selling yeah. if the price is too low, because that that gives you the impression that it's somehow less than. Mm -hmm. And when I would take, like I, I made handmade baskets that were really nice, really time consuming. And I'd I'd sell them for $15 and $20. And when I changed that price point to $100 and $150, I sold more of them than I did at, at $10, $15, $20. You also get better clients. You get clients who pay attention to what you've said. You get clients who respect your policies. You get clients who tip. Um, yep. It's a classic uh, you know, economics exercise. And most people are too scared to raise the prices. If, if you're out there, that's not unique. That's 99.9%. .9%. <laughs> so I just say, Hey, just go in and bump your prices up 5% every now and then. Like I did that at first, when I first got started, I would just go eek the price up a little bit. Now I can, I can um, raise, I can charge quite a price and not bad an eye. And how do you decide on your prices? So I decide by um, a cash forecast. It's a rigorous document. I, um, it's a big, scary spreadsheet. I share it in my course and people usually kind of pee their pants at first, but uh, you essentially, pick, I, in my case, I pick an hourly rate I want to make. And I, so my clients are paying for materials plus my hourly rate, but I have overhead, right? So, you know, I have a little scheduler that I pay for, you know, I have, you know, half my internet, I charge that out to my business. So I have a very rigorous um, document, but to get started, you you know, you don't have to be that, like, I didn't start that rigorous. I've gotten more and more rigorous with business practices over the years. And when I say years, I only went into business in 2017. In 2019, I deepened my business education and I've, I earned like twice as much in 2020 as 2019 during a pandemic. Like business education is where this is at um, because you're already a good sewist. You already know how to make things. So uh, if you spend hours and hours learning sewing, but then you don't want to spend a couple bucks on a business course or spend hours on a business course, it's kind of interesting. But um, anyway, so uh, pricing, the first time I picked a price point when I was under the table years ago, kind of what I say half-assed, I didn't do any rigorous analysis. I said to myself, how much would you have to pay me to spend an hour on your skirt instead of an hour with my kids? <laughs> That is a really subjective number, but I had a number in mind. And that was my first price point. So you don't have to start out rigorous, um, but I'm pretty rigorous these days. That's really cool. So 
you have, um, as I alluded to before, like all sorts of things that kind of kind of make you a rebel in our society. And one of the things uh, you and I share in common, and that is that we're both sober. Yeah, right on. That's awesome. Yeah. Now, to be fair, I am also sober. It just isn't the amazing challenge thing <laughs> that it may have been for either of you. You didn't yeah. have to get sober. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I did not have to. I didn't have to go through the process. Yeah. I just started there. That's wonderful. Yeah. I just have my 10 year anniversary. So that was pretty exciting. Yeah. And you're also a member of a 12 step fellowship. I am. Yes. Uh, I've learned more from that fellowship than any fellowship or group. I have to say like a lot of my business practices are based in service. For instance, my discord community is based in service. Uh, How can I be in service as as opposed to how can I get something out of this discord community? So yes. um, Well, congratulations to you both too, as well. (laughs) It is different. This is a drinking culture and to, to a lesser extent, a drug culture. So it is, you are different when you're sober. It's true. Yeah, I got sober four years ago, and um, I actually didn't get in into um, into twelve step program until about two and a half years ago. And it is amazing how much changed from that point, and where I suddenly was like, "Oh, this should be something that everybody does." I mean, this is this has changed my full life, and. I can't believe what an asshole I was before. And yeah, it's really, um, really, Jenny, you wouldn't want to be doing this with me before I got that program. (laughs) My, my grandparents were alcoholics. So I have some very small experience from the, the other side, Mm -hmm. but, but I, I, I admire what it takes to, to come to that decision and to keep making that decision based on what I've seen. It takes, it only takes desperation for that first part. Uh, you get desperate enough. So that's not really an attribute of mine, but the choice, <laughs> you know what? I, I always say I was presented the opportunity and I perceived it. So in other words, I was desperate just like everyone gets, but I was presented the opportunity and I perceived it. Both those things have to happen because you can present an addict the opportunity and they, they're like, no, nah, I'm just going to do this over here. I'm going to try this instead. It's like, all right, good luck. So I'm very glad, grateful to be sober. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's something that is not, it's still so stigmatized to talk about, to be honest. I know it's much less stigmatized to be a drunk than it is to be in recovery. Yeah. I, it is kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I've had, had people, you know, say things that were pretty crummy, um, but I'm pretty strong in my sobriety. So it doesn't, doesn't bother yeah. me, but I always think, man, for someone who's new, um, that sucks, you know, yeah. they, they need a lot more support. Um, so yeah. In addition to this, you're also vegan. Is that right? Yes. I feel like, I think I'm going on six years vegan. Although I first went vegan in 1990 in Grays Harbor and we didn't even have tofu at the grocery store. <laughs> I was 13. So, um, but this time I've realized I, again, probably from 12 step experience, I was like, if I'm going to go vegan, I need support. So I joined like a billion groups so that my uh, social media was flooded, which is because food, you know, veganism isn't about food, but food is one of the main things we have to think about right away. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. you have to think about that a lot. Um, you can make, you don't have to think about your shoes today, but you got to think about your meals today. So uh, I, 
I went vegan. And then to my surprise, my teenagers and my husband just followed suit right away. And I have to say that sharing that with them is so special. And we're just a little dorky vegan family. It's wonderful. That's wonderful. And since this is a sewing podcast, I have to add, it was harder for me to give up silk and wool than it was to give up any anything that I was eating. I just have to put that in here for yeah. since this is a sewing podcast. Yeah. Yeah. That would be difficult because I also knit. Mm-hmm. The silk wouldn't be so hard for me, but the wool would be difficult for me. Okay. So I was also curious, do you still sew for yourself? Oh yes. Lots. Uh, you, you know, that email you sent, one of your questions was, do you still sew for fun? And I'm like, everything I do is fun. Like today I'm making a pair of cabbage flower underpants and I'm making an ice dye screen printed retro t-shirt. And the, <laughs> they're both for me. Um, but I'm making another pair of the underpants for a, a client. Um, I, I don't need a lot of clothes and my, once you sew for yourself, your clothes last forever. So my closet's pretty slim, which is kind of funny. Um, I've been making my son a lot of underwear. You can see that on my Instagram. You know, he, um, he has like, he's where I learned to sew for trans people. Um, so he has like special, like he's just a lucky young man, right? Cause he'll be like, can you do this? Can you make that? People used to tell me one day my kids would grow out of they wouldn't want me to sew for them anymore, but so far they still want me to sew for them. <laughs> They're 19 and 17. So I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. 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 I've, I've enjoyed going back to the, the call out to service as part of your business model. I've really enjoyed seeing how you put that into practice. Um, and it's, it's really visible just from even a cursory glance mm-hmm. at your Instagram feeds how important that is. And I, I, I like it. It's one of the spaces where I hadn't really considered as a fat woman, I know how unwelcoming sewing can be mm-hmm. um, from that perspective, but I hadn't really stopped to consider that, of course, it's equally unwelcoming to people with, uh, with non-standard gender presentations. And so I, I love seeing the work that you do in that area. Thank you. You know, when I first saw your Instagram and you know, you've got, you're standing in the road with this gorgeous frock and you've got this, your hands are open. And I mean, you, I'm sure have heard from hundreds, at least just how helpful and inspiring and exciting your images are. And, um, you know, that is, uh, that is service, even though I'm sure that wasn't necessarily why you started or maybe it was. So the, the weird thing for me at any rate with it is for for lots of years, because I, I raised girls and one of my fears with girls particularly because of my own experiences was raising girls who thought their bodies were wrong and raising girls who I believe inevitably would be sexually assaulted at some point in their life. Because I I don't think I know anyone who hasn't been. I know a lot mm-hmm. of people who would say they haven't been, but that's because they're not counting the grope on the subway or any of a number of other indignities that are lesser lesser than being thrown to the floor and rape, right? So it's a Mm -hmm. assault comes in all kinds of forms. And so I spent a lot of my time trying to project the things that I thought would give my daughters their best chance at getting through their adolescence as intact as you can. (laughs) And 
I didn't really internalize any of it. So a lot of time talking about how, you know, your body is wonderful, no matter what it looks like. I'm great. You're great. All these things are, are wonderful, but not believing any of that, just trying to present it. And once my girls had moved out and I had grandchildren, daughters as well to start thinking about, I thought, you know, probably it's time that I figured that piece out and posing in clothing that I've made on Instagram has weirdly been the most helpful thing. So the first times that I stood up and tried to take poses before the road happened, every time up, I would put the picture up thinking, well, damn, I'm awful. I look terrible. The clothing looked bad on me. No one will want to see this. Why would I even you know, put this out there in the universe. And over time, I started to take both the negative comments that I receive primarily in DMs and the mm. positive comments that I receive and realize that while those are nice, what matters is I get joy out of creating those images and I get joy out of seeing myself in wonderful clothing and being that exuberant, happy person that I really am now. And I, I wasn't when I started it. So as you go through the feed, there hits a point where Instead of trying to to fake enthusiasm, I'm I'm more having to be held down so I'm not bouncing because it's it's just a, a great world to be in and I'm awesome. So why wouldn't I be excited about that? <laughs> I just love that and I relate in the sense that um, I call it being on my bullshit. It's like uh, I'm gonna stitch a horny werewolf patch on my chain stitch machine because that is what feeds my soul. And like my whole life is like that now. Just like whatever you're seeing on my Instagram is the thing I wanted to create that probably that day. I'm pretty proud. Yeah. And I agree that you know faking it till you make it. It actually works for a lot of things, right? Sometimes we need more help or you know something else. Yeah. But uh, um, I'm sure that you have helped embolden a lot of a lot of people, uh, Jenny. I think that's amazing. I hope so. That's that's another piece of it, right? Is I I want to be the thing that I wanted to see when I was younger, mm-hmm. and didn't see much of. My mom's a fat woman who's always been ashamed and pushed down by it and still is unfortunately and i i wanted to see an exuberant excited happy satisfied person in a fat body somewhere in my world and i just never did mm. i am happy to say that my older daughter who shares a similar body to myself really seems uh much healthier and happier about it than i ever did at her yeah. age and is helping to do that for her daughter as well and it's it's neat to see that passed down it is. So thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> so what is your favorite thing to sew, Kelly? <laughs> no, no, no. Don't ask me that. Um, I love it all because I'll be like stitching up jeans. I'm like, these are my favorite things to make. And then the next day, you know, I'm, I don't know. What have I made this last week? Made a lot of underwear. I guess my favorite, oh, I can't pick. I, I just made these, <laughs> I made these pot holders the other day. They're about a week old as we record um, for my husband and they were all upcycled linen and I chain stitched this, these skulls on them. And one of them says bless. And one of them says burn. And that like, that is me right there because it's a functional, it's a near zero waste. Cause I'm very passionate about not about creating useful things that go to the compost pile someday instead of microplastics and anyway uh that that's like an apex thing it was so um 
uh, it came to me like, and I made it right away. I don't, uh, I either have to make it or I have to write it down because I get flooded with invasive ideas. And I used to feel ashamed of that actually. And it's this last year that I've said, I can't change. I can't. And so I'm just going to write down my invasive ideas and that way. And like, I don't mean invasive in a bad way. I mean, like you could, I could look at something in your house and then design a whole freaking jumpsuit in my brain as we're talking. It's very overwhelming. At times. So I, I write it down or I sew it. And um, that has helped me a lot. So if anyone out there has the same problem, get a little notebook and write down every idea. And at least that takes some of that pressure off. Um, but yes, it's hard for me to say what my favorite thing to sew is. I love watching your chain stitch videos and watching the lives that you do occasionally with other chain stitchers. I think that's that's just fascinating to me. It's I those machines are a blessing and a curse. There's a bit of a learning curve, but um, and there's it's a whole world uh, because they're the sort of original types of machines. I have one, and then there's these replicas or copies. There's some controversy there. It's a little different than your average sewing world. The chain stitch mm-hmm. world's a little different. It's a little more macho in a few ways. Um, but yes, I love chain stitching. It's very chain stitching and darning. You've probably seen me on my darner, which my singer. Mm-hmm, I singer. have. Those are both so meditative. Like I just, they're meditative in a way that, that your traditional garment sewing is not. You just kind of tuning out. It's wonderful. I love it. It's a great balance to kind of work. That's more mental, right? I have one of those mini wooden looms for, yeah. for darning my socks. Cause I make all of like my, um, wool socks. Um, Mm -hmm. and then I need to, you know, stitch them up and I love it. I love doing that. And I love the way it looks when I'm finished too. Those, I call those speed weaves, although I don't know if that's what they're really called. Um, they, I always, I don't have one yet. One of my clients is a visible mender. So I'm helping her build her visible mending business. And she just ordered a big set of those. And I look at that, um, perfect little grid. And I'm like, would I be able to do that? Or would mine look like shit the first time? Like, I don't know, but of course I'm going to have to mess with it because it is very compelling. Right. And yeah, and it's handwork. You can sit yes. on your lap, which is nice. Right. Mm-hmm. I can't do that with my chain stitch machine. Yeah. Why don't you give out some information on what kind of offerings you actually have? Because it sounds like there's products and then there's also That's services true. that you do. I guess like, so my wait list for my sewing and design work is like 148 people right now. Um, but wow. yeah, yeah, it's pretty intense. I feel, I felt bad about that for a while. Cause I was like, I can't, I'll never get to everybody, but I just do my best with that. Um, so that's, you know, if you want something from me, you can get on my email list. And when I have openings, I send an email. So that's, I actually have openings tomorrow. So I'm sending one out. For business coaching, I am teaching a course, again, the last course this year. It's 11 weeks long. Um, It'll be Saturday afternoon, specific. Um, And it's small. It's going to be like 12 people. Like, that's it. So if you are, if anyone's interested in that, um, you should get on my emails for that. All of this is on my website. I have three email lists. It's very self-explanatory. And I like to tell people to just explore. Like, I'm not trying to pressure people into anything. So, you know, you can kind of read my emails and see what we're going to do in the course. And if you're interested, and I just want to encourage anyone out there who's, whether you're a hobbyist or professional, or you're half-assed or in between, 
your work is valuable and we need your work. And it's, it's whether you're, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's your work is very important. And that's when Jenny talks about who I wish I would have seen, you know, when I was a kid, it was like, you're so smart. You should go into engineering. You're so smart. You should be a physicist. You're so smart. And I wish someone would have said, um, I, do you, do you want to be an engineer, Kelly? Cause as much as I liked engineering, I'm much happier as an artpreneur. I think when I was, when I was a young person, nobody was interested in what I wanted to be either. <laughs> um, I was so smart and I should go to college and I should do all these different things. And it, it really wasn't the path I think I would have pursued if I'd been given the same, if the same attention had been given to the resources to let me pursue what I wanted mm-hmm. to pursue. It, it would have looked different for me instead of there being no resources for the things I might be interested in, which were primarily fiber related activities mm-hmm. and lots of resources if I wanted to go become a lawyer or an accountant, as I did in the end. You know, I don't regret being shoehorned into engineering because I no longer am intimidated at the idea of getting an education. Like, I don't I don't feel intimidation at, at kind of anything, really. And so being pushed into such a hard science ultimately did help my character. But I will say when it comes to children, the adults in their lives have way more power than they realize. People do not respect the power dynamic involved. And one little comment at the right, wrong or right time for your kid is devastating. And parents are, and carers and teachers are often kind of foisting their unresolved traumas on their, the children in their lives. And it's awful. So, um, and as, even as unschoolers, my husband and I, I'm sure have done some, you know, damage or we've made some mistakes in that way, but our kids are so independent. I, I have to laugh because it's like, we prided ourselves on these independent unschooled kids and they are really independent. (laughs) Like, I'm like, wow. Like I, can you just come back into the bed and snuggle now? Okay. You're, you're like out of the nest. Right. So Mm -hmm. I kind of of, uh, hoisted by my own petard in that sense. (laughs) Yeah, I actually, when, you know, it's funny too, because I don't think, I don't blame my parents for not kind of leading me into more. First of all, when, at least when Jenny and I were kids, we didn't have, there wasn't as many opportunities for kids, especially kids that didn't have a lot of money. And so like most of the kids, like now almost all the kids play sports or something and have these other hobbies and things like that. And we didn't have that as a kid, like that, that just, my family didn't have that anyway. Um, like you could go to baseball or something, you know, but it really wasn't like, um, like now where they, they, they do piano and they do this and they learn how to do origami and they do all these things, you know, and we just, we never had that. But also when I went to college, you know, my parents didn't, my, my parents just knew working hard, taking care of their family. And, you know, they didn't like dream of their most awesome job and go do that. Right. Mm-hmm. They, they got, they got money to live on and, you know, <laughs> and, and, and that's okay too. Right. Your job, your job doesn't necessarily have to be your passion. The interesting thing to me is that it never even occurred to me to be, I'm a scientist. It never occurred to me to be a scientist when I was younger. It seemed like something, I don't know, like a fireman or something like your dad had to be that. And I I just never thought of that as a, as a possibility, but my parents didn't think of it as a possibility because they didn't know anything about Mm -hmm. it. One thing that I try to do with my kids is just to help them be open to different ideas 
of what they wanted to do. My daughter started writing when she was very young. Um, she loves to write these dystopian stories. She always has. And it always used to <laughs> make me feel a little bad because she'd always write about uh, orphans. And I'm like, do you want to be an orphan? <laughs> yeah. But she ended up going in for creative writing and she's an editor now. And, you know, she, you know, she was able to do those kinds of things. And I also did not push her into being a writer or being anything else. But I see what you, you say about like your parent, the parents saying things in a certain time and also not saying things in a certain time, yeah. like not knowing what opportunities there are. And, and I do think the schools have done a are well, my kids went to school. So there, I think the, some of the schools are doing better job of at least opening some possibilities where, I don't know, it just wasn't brought to my attention as a kid. Like there wasn't internships when I was in, in high school. It was a less nurturing. You feel like it's a slightly more nurturing environment for kids these days. I always cringe when people talk about, we need to teach our kids critical thinking skills. There is no adult on the planet that has better critical thinking skills than a child. Um, and, and if you spend time with a child, especially a young child, especially a child who hasn't been to school yet, you will discover that quite quickly. They are smarter than us. They have a more agile brain and they ask questions that are, you're like, holy shit. <laughs> like, so, you know, I, I think that the less we interfere with children, the more we um, nurture them. And the more careful we are, you know, when my son came out as trans, like I was really, I worked very hard to say very little about how, what I thought, what I felt in front of my child. And I processed that and went other places. Um, and I'm really glad I did because the, I, I definitely watch a lot of parents that they think they're being nurturing, supportive, and they say things to their children that because of that power dynamic, they, those things might be a little more damaging than they realize but I kind of sound like a hard ass on this and I, I'm not, I just, I just really respect how vulnerable our children and teens are and how much they, they need our trust and our, our joyous, you know, support. And um, my kids are, uh, they're the biggest inspirations in my life. They really are. And my oldest Phoenix, he is like, he wants to go, he, you know, he graduated college really young and he's, he's quite the illustrator. Like all he does all day long is draw but he tells me he wants to go into a field of, of STEM, of natural world science, which I'm the worst at that. Like, you know, memorizing biology terms, I couldn't mm -hmm. memorize two terms. I couldn't do it. So it'll be really interesting to see because I'm like, I see this like artistic career he could have, but I think he likes, you know, his father's, um, you go in nine to five, you get a paycheck. Even mm -hmm. if you don't do your best, you just still get a paycheck. <laughs> so there, there's, huge, said for it. <laughs> there, there sure is something to be said for it. Cause as an artpreneur and entrepreneur, you, you feel like you got to give your best a hundred percent of the time. And I've had nine to five jobs and I don't think I felt like I had, I, like, like I wanted to do well, but I, I swear there's a little pressure at being an entrepreneur. It's kind of hard to explain unless you've done it. So one of the things that we talked about this month in our first episode about this sort of rule breaking is sort of the sewing rules that we break. And um, like some of them, some of them are safety rules. Some of them are um, construction rules, things like that. Jenny breaks more of them than I do, but all her stuff comes out beautiful. She knows what to what rules to break. I'm wondering, do you do you break rules when you're when you're sewing? Yes. 
I have probably never used a pattern weight in my life. I'll I'll sew a crepe de shin without a pattern weight. Like I'm I'm able to cut accurately without pattern weights. And um, I never say a word about it because like in my server, people have been talking about pattern weight, pattern weights. And I'm like, I ain't saying shit because like I don't use them. And there's that weird thing. I think people will say, well, you're an amateur, but I'm clearly not an amateur, but no, yeah. I don't use those. The other rule I break, this is a weird one. I, I do not, I am serious about near zero waste. So that means I make wearable muslins that mean like, I have to say that um, is a lot of work to not throw things out. And I think of everything as having a chain of custody. So at the very end of the process, I will donate something to the to the thrift store because we know that something like 90% of what we donate to the thrift store actually gets shipped and landfilled in the global south. And mm-hmm. so sometimes I wish I could relax on this issue a little bit because it's really stressful to account for every thread that comes through my studio. Um, so I'm trying, I'm kind of working with that because I, I do take that seriously, but at the same time. Um, you know, I'm just one person and we have a really wasteful culture and the, how much can I really do about that? You know, while still giving myself freedom to create, to splash around. So that's a really tricky one. Yeah. That's a, that's an important thing for me too. We, we had an episode about this where we were talking about refashioning, actually buying things from the thrift store and the biggest U S thrift store I think is Goodwill and they have a four week time limit of the things on the floor. And so we talked Mm. about the ethics of saving things for somebody else who might need it versus what would happen to it if it doesn't get, um, doesn't get used. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's also some places that I've, I've been reading. I read, a an article and I can't remember, I'll try to link it in the show notes if I can find it again, but someone made a pretty compelling case for, if you have cheap clothing that you are getting rid of, it is better for the world for you to throw it in the trash. Yeah. If I you can not yeah. find a human that wants it, it is better for you to throw it in the trash than to destroy the, um, the industry of clothes making in, in African countries. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a really upsetting, huge, overwhelming topic. It gets the once you start digging into it. Um, and also something I never hear people talking about, I'm sure people have is there are people who are over shopping because of trauma, because of stress, because of mm-hmm. things in their background where they weren't allowed to be themselves or, you know, so it's like, I don't, you know, I think we should be really careful not to judge any particular individual for how they're trying to make their way in the world. But just for me, I just want, I just don't want to, I, well, I, the one thing you don't know, I grew up in a bus until I was eight years old. And sometimes I'm like, is that why I keep such a lean household? <laughs> like, is that why my closet is like this big? I just think like, I was telling my husband, like, maybe that affected me more than I realized, but, but also I just think I'm someone who is very conscientious about what I bring into the home. Of course, once you have children, you know, they haul home anything. I remember my nine-year-old coming home with a rabbit. (laughs) It's like, oh, a rabbit. Now we have to have a home for a rabbit. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard topic. And um, I'd love to listen to that episode. And I know with the thrift store refashioning, I've seen some irritating behaviors with that. I'm sure you covered that with some mm-hmm. 
Yeah, we probably covered some of it at any rate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we don't really have much thrift store around where I where I'm at. So it's kind of we don't really thrift. I thrift online a little bit, like Poshmark, and it's pretty mm. handy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're if you're able to get the clothing to someone who wants it, that's the very best way of yes. getting, getting rid of something. And, and we did talk about being mindful of where you. You know, Jenny, you were talking about giving things away or selling a dress for 20 bucks or it's harder than people might realize. You know, I used to give away a lot of my stuff. And one day I went out to my friend's car and I had made a um, quilted um, bomber jacket with appliques. Like, you know, I put some time and it was smashed on the floor of this um, car. And, And I was you know, I know my friend likes my things, but there was a part of me that was like, man, I don't, I just want my things to go to someone who loves them. I don't even care if I earn money or not. Um, Money is one of the best ways to make sure people value it, unfortunately, but there are other ways. Like I have a, I've started my little program for trans individuals (laughs) so that they can get my garments designed for them free and other people pay for it. So like there, I, I'm pretty good at thinking of creative ways that you can get your wonderful home sewn handmade pieces to people who will appreciate it, but it's a little harder than it sounds. Cause when you give it away, sometimes people don't truly value it and that's can, that can be painful. Right. Yeah. And I've, I, I, <laughs> I will say money is a motivator. I did make the decision that I'm probably going to give less away moving forward because I did discover there's a, a market for things that I don't consider that amazing. They're just my normal day-to-day work clothes. But I I I am gonna I, I'm gonna continue to think about that before I hit the next point where I offload some. In this case, all I'd done was literally somebody else I admire online had done a closet de-stash six or nine months ago. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if anybody would be interested in my stuff. And I decided that was unlikely. But when I went to clean my closet out, because like I, well, I went to put clothing away and I realized no matter how hard I pushed, I wasn't going to fit another hanger in there. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll pull some things out and see what happens next. And I got it all pulled out and I thought, you know, I'm pretty sure that when I give, like I give a big pile of it to my daughter who wears a similar size. And I'm like, I, I think she's keeping 10% of this. And that means the rest of it is either going to her friends or more likely to the goodwill. And we just had an episode talking about that, how that's problematic and may not go the way you think it's going to go. And I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to try and do that. And I went back and looked at the person who'd had the sale and I mimicked their pricing and all this other stuff just to see what happened. And Beverly certainly heard a lot about it before it happened, but I, I kept thinking, well, I've got 40 to 60 items. If I could just sell six or seven of them, that would be great. And that was my big goal, Um, 58 of the 60 sold. And that was just for that flat 20, which also tells me the pricing was wrong. (laughs) Um, But the the plus there, just as people commented on it and DM'd me afterwards and stuff, is it really did go to people who at least at this moment appear really excited about that possibility, even though I kept trying to remind them, this is sewn to my standards. not necessarily your standards. <laughs> also, Jenny, I think it's hard for people who wear your size to even find things in ready to wear that are, you know, anything other than just one brand or something. So you've really provided a service there for people who cannot find clothing. Well, and, and hopefully they'll enjoy what they receive. It should start arriving tomorrow. 
And so yes. either I'm going to get a flood of really angry emails or, or you know, something neutral. Um, so <laughs> we'll see. But I, but I am interested in figuring that out. But as I started to do that, that was what led me to the path of thinking, I wonder if there's a, if there's a path for making things. Like for me, if I was going to niche market, I'd be niche marketing my size and larger. I have no real interest in creating things for people smaller than my body size. I already know how difficult it is to find things in my own body size. So when you talk about having a niche, making it easier to make money, that that would seem to be my immediate niche would be 60 inch hips and bigger. We can talk. And, uh, and I, I have been interested. I looked at the last, the last class offering that you had go up and the timing for us financially just isn't right right now, but as soon as it is, that's, that's something I'm interested in doing. Yeah. And I always say like, um, so yeah. And I do offer by, by the way, payment plans for everything I do ever. So that if I'm selling something for $10 on Instagram, I, you can have a payment plan. If I, you want to be in my course for 1500, I have a payment plan, but, um, <laughs> Price sticker shock is an acclimation process. So if anyone out there is starting to think about selling and they're like, well, I can't really do this for 20 bucks. Uh, what I would my little, uh, you know, 10 second pitch on that is figure out the pricing, use actual math to figure out pricing, not feelings and let people have sticker shock, have a table, have some public place that your prices are located. And people will sit there and like little mice, they will kind of peek and they'll go, oh my gosh, I really want one of Jenny's dresses. I don't have $500. I don't have $50 or whatever it is. And they will sit there and watch your Instagram and they'll watch your stories and they will do the work of talking themselves into it. Trust me. So (laughs) you got to put that price out right away. I've never heard a compelling argument for kind of hiding it to where it's like, it's mystique and someone's going to approach me and beg me for my stuff. I don't get it. Um, I put my prices out ASAP and people will acclimate themselves and they will talk themselves into it. Of course, it's a little more complex than that. And if it wasn't, I wouldn't have a whole course. It's just that don't be shy about that stuff. And also don't be embarrassed if your prices are low at first. Uh, that's a, I did an Instagram live on this a few months ago. It's one of my pet peeves is if Jenny was to start to do this and charge only 50 bucks for this frock or whatever and get people criticizing, that really bothers me. I wouldn't criticize someone's pay, price point upon pain of death. That is not my business. You're a grown up. You picked your price point. But I will. I have seen people do that. They're like, "You're ruining it for everyone else," and I'm like, "No, Jenny's not ruining it for everyone else." Like the fast fashion industry has skewed a realistic ethical price for clothing, and that is not Jenny's fault. That's not Kelly's fault. So I don't. I didn't mean to start to rant, but I'll stop. So. Uh, you know, we're really a ranty podcast. Mm. That's definitely on brand. So. Good, good. I feel so bad now. It's mm. tough. What's really bad is when I meet up with soists in real life, I'm certain that as I walk up to the table, they're like, oh shit, is it another fat sewing rant? <laughs> because it's a given. As I approach a thing, I'm definitely, it's always on my mind. You can't, I, I don't know, somebody complimented a dress I was wearing the other day in a fabric store and I gave them five minutes on why the big four designer who created it did a shitty job of upsizing it so that it didn't even have the features that the dress for a straight size sewist had. There's a part of it that's supposed to be gathered. And when they, when they drafted it up, it doesn't end up gathered. 
what bullshit is that? I mean, did you not even test it? So, and this was just some poor woman who's like, I really like the dress you're wearing. Did you make it? And I'm like, oh, I did. But you should hear about this pattern. <laughs> I love it. It's still yeah, no, terrible. I'm a co-host for a B-movie podcast. And I met, I've known my co-host for many years, but we met in person for the first time last, right before the pandemic, right? Like February. So we meet in person and he says, I thought you were way taller. And I was like, fuck yeah. <laughs> like, like, I love that I have that intimidating energy because I'm not a tall person. <laughs> so. Okay. So you need to plug your podcast right now so I can subscribe. Okay. It's uh, Beauty, the Beast and the Bees. B apostrophe S BBNBS.net. So, okay. And we're, we're pretty sporadic, which is the worst thing you can do for a podcast, anyone out there, but you know, he's my co-host has a new girlfriend and I just don't get time with him anymore. Like I used to, but, (laughs) but yes, we talk about B movies and um, I would, I just love it, but yeah, I'm actually on a few B movie podcasts. If anyone out there loves B movies, uh, hit me up in DMS because I yeah, one of my favorite topics. I mean, you can see my poster behind me here. So yeah. well, yeah. So that's my husband's big thing is horror movies, and a lot of those fall in the B movie genre. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he also likes a good B movie sci fi film. And because I'm a pa- very wimpy when it comes to horror movies, we watch a lot of the B ones. Yeah, <laughs> because this, yeah. Yeah, I have a better shot of getting through those. I see this as another sewing heavy podcast for us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I will say though, my B, my love of B movies influences my sewing an awful lot. Like if you look at my stuff, you know, oh, yeah. I, yeah. So um it's you know your creature, your creature um chain stitch is one of my favorite Thank you. things yeah. ever at Riku Browning um at a convention and he had He's the actor who played the the creature in the original film. And he had illustrated the creature from the Black Lagoon himself in Sharpie on the front of some bags. And we we bought them and we're so excited by this really neat piece of memorabilia that he was way underpricing. So have you read so, the book about the designer? Um, no, I haven't. Oh man, it's called like Woman from the Black Lagoon or something. So Millicent can't remember her last name. Um, it was, you know, she designed the creature and she kind of got like blacklisted for probably for being a difficult woman in Hollywood or whatever, but it's kind of a sad story as it usually is. But, um, yeah, that's a, uh, people, I had, I had two people buy me the book. They wanted me to read it so much, but I haven't read it yet. Uh, so, uh, but you might like it since you love creature and, um, oh, so know, great. I'll look for it. Female designer. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'll definitely look for it. It's it's a favorite in our household, the creature from the Black Lagoon. When my kids were young, um, they both wanted to have horror movie themed birthday parties, and one of them was Creature, and the other was King Kong. So, yeah, one of the it's he's a the creature is one of the only Universal original monsters that was just a it wasn't Dracula, it wasn't Frankenstein, it wasn't from yeah. a novel. It was this you mm-hmm. know woman who came up with it. So. Yeah, no, that stuff's great. I love monsters. And, you know, my oldest kid was drawing monsters from the time they could hold a pen. You know, Beverly, you were talking about your kid writing these things about being an orphan. And as a parent, you think, are all their needs being met? (laughs) (laughs) um, And my kid was drawing monsters. Like we'd go to the Chinese restaurant and they have that paper menu with with the Zodiac. (laughs) And my kid would make a, a special monster out of every Zodiac figure. He never stopped drawing monsters. That's what he's doing. Uh, 10 feet away from me right now. So yeah, it, it's hard when they're little. You're like, oh, is, is everything okay? But it's all okay. It's okay. Is there anything else that you would like to plug or to 
say? I guess like I, I'm about to launch the Tiny Horror Hug Club, which is my program where I make clothing for trans and gender diverse people. So they apply and we have a conversation and I design and create something and send it to them. Or if they're local, I deliver it and um, free to them. So it's, it's something I want to do a long time because my favorite sewing is gift sewing. So while I can make a living and I love making a living at it, I've, I like gift sewing most of all. So I was like, how can I do this without going broke? And I'm like, I'll let other people pay for it. So anyone out there listening, by the time this podcast is up, my website will be pretty slick and you can, you can watch me make these garments. You can apply if you want a garment. There's no income. Like you can, it's not an income-based thing. It's a, I want a hug from Kelly Hogaboom thing. And you can also donate. And the best way to donate is through my buy me a coffee platform. And by the way, thank you, Jenny, for um, your support on that. So, and also if you're, um, if you apply to my, uh, if you support me through buy me a coffee, you get my writings, which are, some of them are pretty personal and I think they're pretty good. So I guess that would be the thing to plug. And mostly just, I want to tell creatives out there to do not let anything stop you uh, create, whether you get paid or not. Uh, that would be my tagline, I guess, for tonight. That's that's wonderful. I can tell already that we're going to need you to come back and talk to us in October for our theme in November. So uh, folks who listen to this podcast and remember to listen to the audio clue for November, that's an extra hint based on what Kelly just said. All right. <laughs> because <laughs> because you are going to be the only way we're going to get through November Beverly yeah. and I is is some conversation with you <laughs> tantalizing I'm excited to hear more well All thank right. you both so much you know I know how much work it is to put a podcast together so mad props That's to you both oh Beverly all I do is show up and interrupt so um That's not true she does all the <laughs> social media for us and mails out all the packages which would never happen was my job so okay everyone we will see you next tuesday the punk frackers is created produced and edited by beverly baptiste and jenny hassler on instagram you can find the podcast at punk frackers you can find jenny at jo hassler and beverly at weeds to wildflowers our artwork and music is created and performed by jim duran you can find him on instagram and his website at jimduran.art 